Hi there, I'm Rory O'Connor, Professor of Health Psychology and a Mental Health Researcher at the University of Glasgow. And I'm Craig, a filmmaker and content creator at MQ Mental Health Research. And welcome to MQ Open Mind, a podcast that brings together lived experience with scientific research to help us to better understand mental health problems. And we hope to do so in a way that is accessible to all. This week we have Dr. Rona Strawbridge, a medical genetics research fellow at the University of Glasgow, and Manfair Sohota, an expert by Lyft Experience. Rona joins us on behalf of DataMind, a health data research hub and a global resource for mental health researchers. Recently, Rona and Manfair worked together on a study about the genetic link between mental illness and diabetes. In this episode, we discussed the significance of creating inclusive research, the challenges of capturing mental health data, and the correlations between physical and mental health. Welcome to the latest episode of Open Minds. And again, we've got two fantastic guests. And um, first, we've got Rona Strawbridge, who is a colleague of mine at, at Glasgow. And we've also got Manfir Sahota. And Manfir is going to talk about some of his own experiences of having diabetes and maybe that comorbidity of diabetes and, and anxiety. And it'll be really interesting just looking at how bringing together, crucially, research and lived experience is so important as we not only plan research, but also looking at how what we can do with big data uh, and data science more broadly can hopefully help people uh, in real in the real world beyond the sort of the lab and beyond the computer of Rona's high-powered high-powered computer to do the, the analysis. So welcome. Thanks, Rona and Manvir, for joining Craig and I today. Oh, you're welcome. It's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Welcome. Great. So we're looking forward to, to our conversation. So what we tend to do with the podcast is it's just a conversation, and we're really going to start with your journeys, each of you have your own journeys and why you're on the podcast today, and really then we'll move into the sort of science and the, the, the big data stuff. So, Rona, maybe kind of start with you. Obviously, we, we, we were in the same university, in the same school of health and well-being at Glasgow. But can, for, the, for our listeners out here, can you tell us a bit about your journey? I know, I know your journey, but others don't. So tell us about, what you, I know you started biochemistry, so let's take it from there. I studied biochemistry and got very interested in genetics and genetics of diseases. I spent a lot of time doing research on obesity, diabetes and heart disease before starting to look at mental illness. I was honestly shocked when I saw the life expectancy difference between individuals with and without mental illness. And the fact that a lot of that is driven by cardiovascular disease or heart disease was surprising because we have so many preventions for heart disease. Why is it not working well in those with mental illness? So that's my main research question and trying to understand what the link is between mental illness, diabetes, obesity, heart disease. And yes, there seems to be growing evidence that there's a true biological link. It's not just how people with mental illness experience life and their lifestyle factors. And so, okay, we'll come back to the science in a, in a, in a second, Rona, but so you're obviously third in biochemistry and then you then moved, you did that in Cardiff, I think in Wales, and then you moved then to the Karolinska in Sweden. So so what, what, how did that journey happen? 
after my degree in biochemistry, I found a PhD position actually in prostate cancer predominantly at the Karolinska Institute in Sweden. I also ended up doing some research on the genetics of diabetes at that time. And when I finished my PhD, the diabetes was what interested me more. So I found a research position that continued to look at genetics of obesity, diabetes, heart disease. And yeah, that's what I find very interesting. And there's a great need for better understanding of this area. Oh, fantastic. And um, and I'll, we'll come back in a second looking, because I'm keen to explore that, because you obviously were highlighting the early mortality and that comor or the multimorbidity or comorbidity of um, uh, mental illness and physical illness and, and the role of um, cardiac disease. But let's maybe just um, go to Manveer first to get a bit of background in Manveer's um, story so far. So Manveer, can you tell us a bit about, about your background? Yeah, of course. Um... Well, diabetes uh, has very much been my life. I've been a type 1 diabetic since I was uh, one years old, um, which is obviously very young to be diagnosed. Um, I'm now sort of in my 30s, so it's been, yeah, a long time. Um, and, uh, yeah, and I've suffered from sort of mental health problems from the age of around 16. Um, as a result of a, uh, a major hypoglycemic attack, which uh, um, which triggered it. Um, and life has essentially never been the same since. Um, and that was around nearly 20 years ago now. Well, I'm really sorry, really sorry to hear that. And 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 so if I understand correctly, with the, the, that's in those late teens, that's 16, 18 time. So, so I, I mean, anxiety and depression were... Or challenges for you? Yes. Um, so the anxiety attack started sort of soon after that incident uh, of panic attack straight out. I mean, it was horrific. Um, I went to the point of getting becoming agoraphobic. And yeah, I was my world just would kind of been turned upside down, really, from that one traumatic incident, because mm -hmm. I, th I thought I was going to die in that incident. I really did. And it happened on a train in India as well. So, you know, not exactly the best place. No, certainly not. No. And then at, that was one trigger. And then at 19, another trigger, something completely unrelated to health, unfortunately, caused me to have a mental breakdown, uh, which then that cocktail then of uh, diabetes, anxiety and depression was, um, I guess I call it the unholy trinity, really. It was, uh, it's not been easy. Yeah, no, certainly not. And did, did at that stage, did you have any sense of the relationship between the diabetes is your physical health and your mental health. I guess I guess I'd call it an inkling, as in I had some idea that not just with diabetes, but in general with sort of long-term chronic illness, that there is a connection. And then on my research over time, I happened to read somewhere that it um again, this isn't backed, I didn't see it backed up by any hard data, but it was saying that we're three times more likely to have diabetics are three times more likely to have mental health problems than someone who isn't. So that's how it kind of started to get more into more solidified within my mm -hmm. sort of knowledge base. Yeah. I suppose that's what we'll return to Rona in a second, but I suppose that's one of the important messages of this podcast and this importance of dissemination of this kind is trying to get the message out there, A, that the the, the nature of that relationship of physical health and mental health and this odd this odd distinction we make between the two. It's, there's arbitrary distinction between physical health and mental health, but also 
the importance of the research and the sort of the, the big data work, which is helping us hopefully understand a the nature of the relationships and then obviously hopefully over time then develop treatments, both pharmacological and, and psychosocial treatments to help and support people as they, as you say, navigate real, real challenges. And you said things haven't been the same, sadly, since your, your teens. And um, maybe to go back to Rona now, Rona, obviously your current title is whatever, UKRI Innovation Fellow. And 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 that work in is, is being trying to really, and well, I didn't know about actually, I didn't know you, your PhD was in prostate cancer and diabetes. So really interesting, obviously with Manvir, Today and I know your big focus now, obviously, is in um, uh, cardiometabolic metabolic stuff, cardio metabolic stuff. So maybe you tell us a bit about the work that you are doing now, and because you really speak to what Manvir has highlighted. I know Manvir talking about diabetes and mental health, but in terms of cardiac health and mental health, can you tell us a bit about some of that work and and maybe some of the precise statistics you said about the early mortality? Yes. So when I got the opportunity to start looking at mental illness as well as physical illness, I, with this early mortality in those with mental illness, I thought it was very important to try to understand what the link is. And if there is the same biology underpinning mental illness as well as heart disease or diabetes or obesity, maybe some of the treatments that we have for the physical conditions can be repurposed to improve the symptoms of those with mental illness, as well as then preventing some of these longer term complications. So traditionally, people have collected studies, information from people about when they had mental illness, when they had physical illness, and used that to try to understand the link. But one can affect the other quite significantly, as Manvir has mentioned. If you use genetic data, genetic data counts as an exception, but genetic data is fairly stable. So if you can identify genetic markers of one disease, you can look at them, use them to see which direction the causal effect is, which condition comes first. And with cardiovascular disease, sorry, heart disease, diabetes, obesity, it really does look like the, the link is going in both directions. It's not that you have a physical condition and it causes a mental condition or the other way around. It really does seem to go in both directions, depending on your environment, your lifestyle, mm -hmm. stressful life events, mm -hmm. all sorts of things. But so can I just interrupt there for a sec, uh, Rona, on the, the bi-directionality stuff, are you saying, so are we saying that the, or, or so do we have any idea which direction is stronger, I suppose is my first question. And then the second one is you mentioned there that the genetic component is relatively stable. So is that because obviously, because we know of epigenetic effects, but they obviously are more associated with early life. And my understanding that's correct. So can you maybe just on the, both of those points, the first the first point on the strength of directionality and then maybe the stability of the genetics? Well, the strength varies a little bit depending on which study you look at. But the fact that there is a very strong link suggests that actually there is something that's underlying both diseases. And it could be, so one theory I have is if your cardiovascular system, if your blood vessels are not functioning particularly well, then that's going to have effects on your heart and how well your heart is working. 
but also the small blood vessels in your brain and also not going to be working optimally. Mm-hmm. So that's the uh, kind of example of where one mechanism can be having effects on both the brain and the rest of the body. So using genetics is useful for trying to untangle um, how this is happening. In terms of epigenetics, to be honest, that's not an area I get into. There are a lot of environmental effects, but the data I work with doesn't have that information. Okay. No, no, I'm sorry. There's an unfair question. It just struck me as you were speaking. That was all. So sorry. Sorry about that, Rona. Just what thing just dawned on me, just for our listeners, is um, could you give us a definition of cardiometabolic disease, which you obviously talk a lot about in your research, but what, what is that? My definition yeah. <laughs> is obesity, diabetes, and heart disease. The combination is very hard to separate those three mm-hmm. conditions because they interlink so much. If you can imagine there being, say, 30 different pathways that influence all of them, maybe 10 affect heart disease and obesity and 10 affect obesity and diabetes and 10 affect diabetes and heart disease, then which combination each individual gets, it's very hard to untangle. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and, yeah, no, that makes sense. Perfect sense. Rona, asking you again, just more on, on, on the on the big data stuff. So we'll, we'll do a bit of a deep dive maybe on work that you're doing currently. But before we go into that, I'm always curious is when we talk about big data, I mean, it's it's obviously one of the big buzzwords. And in, in the UK, there are obviously now national organizations really to help us maximize the impact or use of big data, and but also the challenges and, um, and their challenges and opportunities. So could you tell us about your experiences of using big data and what you see as the sort of both those, the major opportunities and the challenges? So I've worked with small data sets, so small in terms of the number of individuals included in them, who have extensive amounts of data available. That is the old fashioned version. That's what I worked with during my PhD and my postdoc research time. Nowadays, things like UK Biobank have started up and it's been a huge development to be able to have huge data sets with huge amounts of information about each individual. So for the first time, we actually have a data set that is big enough, that has enough individuals in it with enough information about both mental illness and physical illness. Previously, you had one or the other. You had a data set with physical illness or a data set with mental illness. Having a huge data set with everything you could possibly want to know about any medical condition for a large number of people has been a massive step forward in what we can do. So now I'm able to use one data set where everybody is um, assessed in the same way, has the same information available, and importantly has genetic data to be able to answer these questions. When you have small data sets, you are limited on what you can do, especially if you want to look at something like sex-specific analysis, Mm -hmm. because we know there are differences in men and women, how they experience all kinds of conditions. So, The big data is fantastic. Going back to the smaller data sets, organizations like HDR UK trying to put all the data together in a harmonized way so we can start to use these smaller data sets because 
People have given their time and their data. It's mm -hmm. a shame to not be able to use it. An organization putting all the data together to try and make it continually more useful is absolutely fantastic and very, very valuable for a researcher like me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then what about the challenges then? So a major challenge that I'm aware of at the moment is getting data from individuals with mental illness. There are a lot of barriers to participation in studies. One is trust. Yeah. Talking about anything in your health is a scary thing to do. Mental illness and all the stigma and possible biases against people with mental illness makes it really hard for people to trust and give that information. There's also engagement. Somebody might want to participate, but if they wake up and they're having a really bad day or they're having an, a psychotic episode, participating in a research study is not high on their list of priorities. Yeah. So we really do lack good information about the people who are most sick, people who most need the help. Yeah, yeah. So the generalizability, I mean, of some of these data sets obviously is uh, problematic. Um, but I suppose it it can that, that I mean that obviously limits some of the questions you can ask. So, for example, in prevalence, it's really difficult to ask questions on prevalence if you're systematically either consciously or unconsciously, or um, there there's obviously bias. But but it still, of course, doesn't stop us asking other questions when you're looking at mechanistic work. Like Absolutely. You, like you do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, research in mental illness is learning a lot from research in physical conditions. So for diabetes research, traditionally, we looked at people with and without diabetes. That's great. Mm -hmm. But it limits how many people you can find who have diabetes who want to participate. You can start to look at features of diseases that are present in the entire population. So for diabetes, we might look at individuals who don't have a diagnosis as diabetes, but we look at their insulin levels or their glucose levels. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In the same way, we can do a similar thing with psychiatric disorders or mental illness. So we can look at whether individuals experience anhedonia and plenty of people without a diagnosis of a mental illness periodically just lose they experience anhedonia, which is loss of pleasure and something they normally enjoy. So being able to learn from the physical conditions to better ask questions and better find data to work with for their mental conditions, we're getting there. We're making progress. <laughs> yeah. So then, so on that, then I'm going to bring Manvir in and get about this specific project. So you've been doing work. You mentioned there on the genetic link between mental illness and diabetes. So what? what so can you tell us? to the, a lay person what you what you found or maybe not so lay person <laughs> <laughs> so one of our recent findings is that again anhedonia the loss of pleasure mm -hmm. in things you normally enjoy and fasting insulin levels so a measure of how well your body is handling glucose mm -hmm. and dietary energy they share about 30 percent of the genetic regulation oh. so it really does look like there is something going on that regulating how you use energy and how your mood is reacting to that or causing yeah. them to, yeah, it could go both ways. So I was very excited to talk to Manvir and ask him to what, ex sorry, Rory. No, go, fire away, fire away. <laughs> to ask, to what extent do you find that your mood and how much insulin you need to take, how does that vary? Do you notice any patterns? Oh yeah, no, I definitely do. Um, I find that generally with, because I am somebody who can, who does kind of 
go on that i guess i call it the tan graph you know you're literally your um your mood my mood kind of goes from up to down up to down constantly changing and like the extremes i guess even and um it either way whether it's very stressed and kind of in the hyper i need more insulin um because the sugars are generally going up because of the adrenaline and all the other sort of you know chemicals that are flowing in that state of mind um and on the it's interesting though like this has been a more recent thing i guess i've noticed more of a because usually before it wasn't the case for me that in low mood i necessarily needed felt that same thing because you're not you're in the hypo state at that point mm -hmm. um i mean emotionally obviously not you know in terms of a diabetic hypo um and i find that now i've needed when there's been continuing sort of patterns of that so if it's been like not just a brief spell and actually more like say an entire day or a few days of really low mood i've noticed that i've started to need more insulin which is something that is a bit of a change for even me you know and so when did you when did that when did you start to notice that change manvir only within just because i've been under so much stress in other areas of my life in the last year i've noticed it maybe in the last seven months i'd say um mm. more so and then maybe i have a question then back to rona on that so always uh manvir obviously has established that relationship confirms the relationship you found on your in your data but have you looked at then like an activation effect is it stronger under periods of stress or can you tell that from your data can you do that sort of moderation or interaction analysis it is something that i've thought about and wondered how best to approach it so it's on my radar and i'm trying to figure how you statistically model that mm -hmm. <laughs> with the data yeah. that I have available. Um, I do remember discussing with a colleague who's a psychiatrist and saying people with bipolar disorder feel like they have a huge amount of energy or no energy. Mm. Can we test that? Can we do glucose tolerance tests when mm. people are, um, yeah, have the mania phase versus the depressed phase? And he said, well, <laughs> practically it's not going to work because... The, the patients, if they're in the mania phase, they're not going to want to come to the clinic. If they're in the depressed phase, they're not going to want to come to the clinic. And if somebody's emotionally unstable, then depriving them of food to be able to do the testing, it's just not okay. Yeah. <laughs> so there are things I would love to do that just aren't feasible. I keep trying to find ways that are feasible and humane. <laughs> yeah, no, that's... So So has nobody looked at that that question you've, looked, you've just mentioned there, Ronald, that I'm aware of. Question. Yeah. Okay. And and I suppose the, the I suppose the thing came to my head there when you're when both of you were just speaking was but right, so what the first your um contribution Rona has illustrated is the importance of that big data or small data but deep data whatever way you want to describe it um uh, really really rich data but then it's trying to then map that on do you like, do you do any of the qualitative work, Rona, that tries to map any of that on to you? Like, so what Manvir has just told us obviously supports what you've said, but he's, he's raised this other issue of actually, maybe it's just it's more now because I've been under stress. So it's something I've thought about. I don't do any qualitative work at the mm. moment, but now that I'm in touch with Manvir, he might get pestered by me lots with <laughs> questions like this. Because I do find it interesting. I read a lot of science. Mm. I don't necessarily see the human side of things. Yeah. So I'm really happy to have this opportunity to to meet Panvir. Right. Yeah, sorry, this is really interesting actually you say that because again, this is I've just I've noticed that now myself that I know the qualitative side having lit the lived experience, but I'm not on the data side. So we're kind of 
it's almost like we're two sides of a of the same coin really um we should definitely be in more contact but i think so it sounds like it could be beneficial to us and everybody a lot of people out there as well i think no absolutely i think well i mean obviously that's one of the great advances in the last 10 or 15 years is that central rule now of lived experience and shaping all aspects of the research agenda. Um, but then that brings me to a point then, which we've touched on a bit in the context though of a diversity issue around the, these big data sources or small data sources, but the, these in terms of um, quantitative um, repositories, um, often quantitative data repositories, is what, what else can we do though to try, and, to try and ensure we have diversity? Because UK Biobank we know is a great resource, but we know it is only represents, largely speaking, a group of people who tend to be more likely to the middle class and of a particular, and maybe more interested in their, in their health and so on. So have either of you any ideas on what else we can do in terms of um, diversifying or improving diversity? And I'll just say one thing before you jump in, because in another, we're having another discussion, Craig and I, with another guest, and they had an idea of just part of and, and she was just speaking personally about she um, never used to include qu- or answer questions about ethnicity when she, as an individual, and if she was asked in surge in a clinical context ever, or to her GP or whatever it may be, and and she said that's because uh, she's from an ethnic minority background herself, and and in some way didn't she so set up with some that would lead to maybe barriers or trouble. But then as she progressed in her career, her view was, no, no, but it, actually it's really important that we collect this data, in her case, around ethnicity, because it, and her line was, if it's not counted, it's not important, right? Or, or you can't demonstrate the importance without counting the data. So that's one way she thinks of trying, to, so her, her advice was, we're trying to improve diversity. We need to ensure the general pop, pop population, the general public recognize the importance of data. So with that sort of proviso, that was a bit of a long way around to getting back to asking the question. So have you any suggestions what we could do both from a lived experience perspective, Manveer, or Rona from a research perspective, what we could be doing to try and ensure diversity, that we do get inclusivity in our data? Rona, maybe go to you first. And Manveer, you second. Rona? Sure. I, I just hope I'm not talking too much. Um, I think it's it's important to give the message out that especially considering genetic data, we what we know is based so much on European ancestry because that's the data that's the easiest that has been historically the easiest to collect. But it limits what we know. Mm-hmm. The European ancestry accounts for perhaps eight percent of the global population. So we're missing a lot of information. And the data that we have is not useful to everyone. I think making it more or, or giving a better idea that, Actually, it's important for everyone to benefit. Everyone has to participate mm-hmm. and contribute. Easier said than done. Yeah. I'm well aware of that. Um, yeah, over to you, Manvi. Yeah, no, that's a, no, that's an important point. Manvi, are you any, any other, or maybe another way to ask a question of you, if, uh, and I don't mind how you answer it, is, is if, we, if, you, if we were advertising for a study on diabetes or whatever, or mental health, would you take part, first of all? And then secondly, if you were reluctant to take part, are there things that we could do to make it more likely that you that you would say yes? The interesting thing about me, not only, I guess, would you say in general, but in terms of even within my sort of ethnic sort of community as well, 
um, I'm different in that I will, I'm very open and willing to partake in such things. And I'm happy. And I think it's because health has been my life. Yeah. You know, that's probably, and that's why I'm interested in sort of all around, you know, in general and like studies like and research like this that's being done, for example. But I mean, there are, I can be honest with you, even now, like just thinking about it, there are a lot of people not only in my community, uh, my sort of ethnic community, or even within the diabetic community that I know who would, as you know, Rana said about difficulty with, you know, finding participants, people just wouldn't want to talk about these things. You know, they really wouldn't. And that's the honest truth. You know, I've learned that from experience. And even if I've been open, people have even not been so comfortable to even reciprocate with me on that yeah. personal level. So if I'm really thinking about it, I'm not sh without unless you really, like you say, just try to encourage people as much as possible. I'm not sure what else could be done. I mean, I know diabetics even who hardly ever go and see the doctor, you yeah. know, and, and people who are, so that's just, and even other people I know who aren't diabetic or won't even go for their once a year physical, you know, mm -hmm. it's, um, so it's about, it's part of a bigger problem of trying to change people's attitudes towards health in general, you know, and about looking after yourself and then wondering and, and so forth. But yeah, it's, it, I can appreciate the challenge. And unfortunately, even after everything I know and all the knowledge I've gained, I'm not sure how one could change it because that that it's almost within my community as well. There's that it is that cultural thinking, yeah, you know, as well. And um, not only in terms of just the way that people view their health, but mental health is still it's a very very backwards view when it mm -hmm. comes to mental health. People, I mean, I know so many people who still think, even like relatives of mine who think, you know, you only go to a psychiatrist if you're, uh, you know, if you're, if you're crazy, you know, essentially. Yeah, yeah. Or you take antidepressants for the same reason it's it's almost like there is still that shame in it yeah you know so it's part of a much much bigger picture here of what you're dealing with so and i know this is like they're trying to collect the data is one small facet of that which is just going to be a great challenge from what everything i've and from my lived experience yeah and I, I know roman's trying to come in no i think that's a point really well made manvir is although we have we are making progress um in terms of tackling the stigma and the shame and so on. But I think we, we, we're, we're going at different speeds with regard to different mental health conditions and, and people from different backgrounds. And that's not just ethnic minority backgrounds. That's a whole range. I mean, I also say looking at socioeconomic background as well. So I think we do, we have a lot, we have a lot to do there. Rona, you were trying to come in there when Manvir was, was, was chatting there. I was just wondering if, um, making it more obvious because I don't think the general public are necessarily aware of this biological link between mental and physical conditions. If we can make it more clear that the two are very tightly connected, mm -hmm. you mm -hmm. cannot separate the two. Maybe people who are more concerned about their physical health when in later life, whether they'll enjoy their retirement, for example, whether that would make them, whether that would encourage participation for mental illness or mental yeah. health research as well no absolutely I, I, in a way that sounds so simple right and i agree entirely with you right but try to do it because if i think back i think that if we go back to i think i might be wrong in the precise year but the world health organization i think in 1948 came out with a statement about there's no health without mental health or that idea that we have to see these things holistically Right. And, and obviously, hopefully I'm not so far out, but it definitely, my memory was, was 1940s, right? 1948. And we still see these things as, as, first of all, dichotomous, sadly too often. And as you say, 
Rona, the, the work that you're doing and others are doing is is seeing that the genetic commonality that underpins both of them. And of course, there's huge environmental influences as well, of course. But it's recognizing that these are all, it's just about health. It's, and it's, to my mind, I think it's a much more healthy um, way to go. And it might, as you say, it may help with dealing with the stigma or challenging the stigma around uh, mental health in particular. No, that, that, no two, two really uh, useful observations. So we're sort of coming to, to to a sort of close here. So I'm just trying to have a couple of last couple of last questions for you both. Um, so we touched on the sort of inclusivity and diversity around data, and and there has been um, great progress in these big repositories now to try and move things forward. But I think in when what the conversation here has highlighted is importance of bringing up that big data is all well and good, but how does it, how do we translate it into every, our everyday lives and the importance of implementation science and all these things. But Mavi, you touched on about things that help. I mean, in terms of, in terms of your own individual, the impact on you individually, mm. your mental health. So for me, I always think it's useful in this podcast to find out what works for each of you in terms of sort of the implementation bit is, what do you each do in your everyday lives to, to hopefully manage your own mental health or look after your own mental health? So maybe start with Manvir this time. Manvir, what what, are you, what works for you? Well, it's interesting for me. It's actually been sort of fifteen year journey now, really. So it's it's changed a lot over time, essentially. But there's some things that are, I mean, essentially, I've tried every therapy under the sun. You can think I was in every modality, and I say therapy. You know, in terms of psychotherapy, psychiatry, psychoanalysis. CBT, I've done it all. Um, and well, the one thing that did help, which I've done for the most time now, over well over a decade, is um, uh, psychosomatic and sensory motor psychotherapy. And I can say to that, the extent of the help that's given, that's done, what it's done for me is, it's essentially saved my life. Like, I don't think I would have been here today had I not found that, you know, all that time ago. Um, what, what does that involve? I'm less familiar with that. What, what does that involve? I was just about to ask oh, the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> well, the base theory of it is that <clears throat> essentially it was developed by um, a doctor called uh, Dr. Peter Levine. And um, the theory of it is, is that trauma isn't necessarily all in the mind. It's also in the body. Mm-hmm. And so like animals in the wild, they, depending on where they are in the food chain, they can be under threat from a predator at any particular point. And um they have their fight or flight response, you know, and so once they escape that situation, their nervous systems are naturally built to discharge that pent up energy that they get in that situation. But we as humans aren't, our nervous systems aren't built that way. So essentially, to put it primitively, the gunk builds up in our nervous systems. And that's what can then lead to things like, you know, addictions and, you know, physical health problems and, you know, even twitches and you know just different physical manifestations of unprocessed trauma which is what I had plenty of not just through my health concerns but even other aspects of life where I've suffered a lot of trauma too so I was I had a whole cocktail of things that essentially were inside me causing all sorts of problems Um, so it's essentially been through seeing a therapist who deals with that particular type of therapy where I've managed to get a lot of that junk out of my system is is, um, yeah uh, which has kind of saved my life, really. Okay, fun. no fun. I mean, I, I will Google that afterwards or look at more into this. I'd never heard of that. So no, and 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 just to say, we're so glad you are still here, <laughs> Manvir. Thank so, you. <laughs> um, 
And then maybe on to Rona. So what would you what what do you do to look after your mental health? For me, regular exercise, even though I might hate going for a run, um, is very beneficial. And I spend as many weekends as possible hiking in the middle of nowhere. So getting away from the city, getting into somewhere green, mm-hmm. that makes me happy. Yeah, no. And and well, living most of the time in Scotland, Rona, obviously that's easier for us in the this great part of the United Kingdom, obviously, of our access to the the, the good outdoors and the hills is, is great. Okay, so one um, last one. What, oh, sorry, man, were you trying to come in there? Yeah, sorry. I, there were a couple of other things I was going to mention. Yeah, that's yeah, okay. fair I, yeah. I can just add on. Um, the, uh, another, I mean, obviously, that's the kind of core thing that's helped me, the therapy that I mentioned. But there was also, I use sort of quite a few sort of, I'm, I'm quite into alternative medicine. So I do use things like cbd oil for example which you know has had a big push in recent years and become more a bit more mainstream i think um which has really helped with just generally calming nerves and with even some of the psychosomatic pain that i've had in the body you know uh, where i mean some points i've ended up in a and e with that pain has been that bad you know and this oil has massively helped me we had nothing else could no other painkiller could for example and um and it also helps calm the nerves overall and the anxiety um and also i do partake in homeopathic medicine as well which has been helped me in certain aspects where sort of allopathic medicine hasn't been able to you know so I again I'm, I take that holistic approach that you mentioned earlier and I do try anything and everything that I feel might help and I'm pretty open-minded when it comes to um to those sort of things yeah great no, I think that personalized approach I think is, is really really important um Okay, so thanks for that. Um, one last question we try and ask all our guests is, and maybe I'll start with Rona this time. Rona, so reflecting on, you're a bit older than 16 now, I think. So um, <laughs> so what advice would you give your 16-year-old self? And it could be on any aspect of life. It doesn't have to be mental health related. What, 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 reflecting back, what would you wish your 16-year-old self had known? That's a really tough question. <laughs> You've got a head start here, Manvir, to try and think of yours. Yeah. <laughs> I think a motto I came up with when I when I was doing my PhD, actually, and I talked to my supervisor who was into diabetes research, I said, so if I eat well and sleep well, everything will be fine. She's like, pretty much. So that's what I try to stick with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so obviously, basic homeostatic function. If you feed or you maintain that, and obviously both of those will help with that. Um, yeah, so that's that's really solid advice there, Rona. Manvir, what about yourself? Yeah, if well, if we're talking sort of in terms of the overall picture, I would say, I, I mean, yeah, to use a generalized cliche, I would just say expect the unexpected <laughs> is one. Um, but if I was getting more specific to my personal situation, I would just say don't get on that train. <laughs> you know, um, yeah. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Well, both of them obviously. Um, <laughs> well, we'll we'll try and um, the expect the unexpected one. I think I, I I like that. I really like that one because that's one way of us trying to give ourselves a false sense of control over events if we expect the unexpected. And then and then well, just I would say hopefully there are different trains we can get on and they and bring us to better destinations. I think that's maybe the way to try and end this. So all that remains for me is a huge thank you on behalf of Craig and I for taking the time to join us. I really thought that worked really well together, obviously, hearing about Rona's great science, but also from Manvir, your perspective on how that science makes sense. And it really highlights 
the importance of these different approaches in terms of that detailed quantitative data ses assessment, but also if we're trying to move all fields forward, it is, takes these different approaches with different voices. So huge thanks from Craig and I, and, and, and enjoy um, the rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you. Thanks. MQ Open Mind is presented by MQ Mental Health Research, the only organization that exclusively invests into scientific research around mental health. Our vision is to create a world where mental illnesses are understood, effectively treated, and one day prevented. Please leave us a review and let us know what you think about the podcast. Each review helps us reach a wider audience. Visit mqmentalhealth.org to learn more about MQ and mental health research.